Please pray with me. Oh God, you are Lord. You alone, and you made the heaven and the heaven of heavens with all of their host. The earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. May we, God, join the host of heaven worshiping you right now as we open your breathed out word. I pray, God, that you would remove all distractions from our minds and lay low every barrier in our hearts so that we might hear your truth afresh and apply it to our lives in a way that transforms us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And Father, to that end, I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray, God, that you would crucify every fiber of my flesh and that you would fill me to overflowing with the power of your Holy Spirit to speak forth your word in a way that is true and powerful. So God, I ask all of this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. What is your story? Do you have a story about how the gospel transformed you? The most powerful way to share the gospel is through the story of your own personal life-changing experience. Often people think they don't have a story to tell about the life-changing power of the gospel because their testimony is not as dramatic as the Damascus Road experience that transformed murderous Saul into missionary Paul. But the truth is, is that every encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us. Your story may be simple, unremarkable, or common, but your transformation should be evident. Who you are in Christ should be different than who you were before Christ. The gospel has life-changing power. It is the power of God to save us from our sin. It also liberates us to serve him. We see this in Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 24. Paul tells us who he was before his dramatic encounter with Christ. Then he tells us who he became. And finally, he shows us how he answered God's call to service. This passage includes Paul's conversion from sinner to saint and his call to serve God as an apostle to the Gentiles. When we understand who Paul was and who he became, we can only stand in awe of the life-changing power of the gospel. The gospel has life-changing power. That is the truth that we will see as Paul is transformed from radical persecutor to redeemed Paul to a refined preacher. Those are our three divisions. So our first division is radical persecutor. Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14 read, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, 
so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was the most unlikely of converts. When he speaks of his former life in Judaism, he is referring to his life as a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a group of religious Jews who believed that to please God and to make it into heaven, they had to meticulously follow a long list of religious rules and regulations. Paul excelled as a Pharisee. He was radically involved in the persecution of early Christians. Legalistic to the core, he was extremely zealous as a defender of God's law. He sincerely believed that he earned God's favor by following God's law, known as the Torah. He followed it to the letter. God required perfection in keeping his law. To break one law was to break them all. Paul looked at God's law, looked at his life, and said, check, I follow every one of these laws perfectly. In addition to God's law, the Jews of Paul's day added thousands of laws to help the people follow the original 613 moral and civil laws God gave Moses. They added what is called the Mishnah to the Torah. The Mishnah built a fence of additional man-made rules around God's law to protect the people from even coming close to breaking God's commandments. These laws created a huge burden for the people of Israel and they were impossible to keep perfectly. For example, to God's commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, they added 39 more laws to help the people keep this commandment. One of the added laws forbid people from carrying anything on the Sabbath. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. The Pharisees ignored this miraculous healing and instead zeroed in on the fact that the lame man picked up his mat and carried it. He broke one of their 39 Sabbath laws, not God's Sabbath law. They completely missed the spirit of the law. That's Jesus's point in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28, when he addresses these men saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, for outwardly you appear beautiful, but inwardly you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear... Uh, righteous to others outwardly, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. According to Jesus, the Pharisees were legalists who were only concerned with the external appearance of keeping God's law, not the inward spirit of the law. They were, in fact, lawbreakers, not law followers in God's sight. Paul's pharisaical zeal was manifested in his passionate persecution of the early church. 
He was a brilliant man who knew God's law inside and out. Yet he was so convinced that Jesus was a false teacher or a false prophet that he sought to imprison or kill those who followed him. He was so convinced that the disciples of Jesus Christ were blaspheming God that he blindly defended Judaism and its traditions. He was so convinced of what he believed about Jesus that he never stopped to examine all the proof Jesus provided that he was indeed God's promised Messiah. Paul, he missed the one that every Jew lived in hope of seeing, the one to whom all the traditions of Judaism pointed. From a human point of view, Paul was hopeless. Do you know anyone like Paul? His story reads like the stories of many who have rejected or are running from the gospel. His story reads like the stories of many of our prodigal children and friends. His story reads like the stories of Christians before they received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Thanks be to God for the life-changing power of the gospel. Like Paul, you and I are helplessly and hopelessly dead in our sin. Lawbreakers who are blind to the truth about God, the truth about our sin, and the truth about Jesus Christ. Until the power of God breaks through to save us. By grace, God infuses the gospel with the power to transform us from lawbreakers to zealous gospelizers. That's our first truth, that the gospel powerfully transforms us from lawbreakers to zealous gospelizers. Which chapter of your life story records the gospel's powerful transformation of your life? How does the gospel's life-changing power manifest itself in you each day? What do others see in you that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive? Legalism is never attractive. It is stifling, strength-sapping, and soul-killing. You and I, we are utterly incapable of keeping God's law perfectly. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. He kept the law perfectly for us so that we don't have to. Now this doesn't mean that we can live as lawbreakers, free to do whatever we please. It means that we are free from the penalty of failing to live up to God's holy and perfect standard. It means that we are covered in Christ's righteousness and have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us grow day by day into the likeness of Christ. Our growth in Christ's likeness makes the gospel attractive to others. When they see Jesus in you and me, they want what we have. They want him. That is the goal of every believer. That is Paul's goal. 
Once the gospel powerfully transformed him from lawbreaker to zealous gospelizer, he completely abandoned himself to the purposes of Christ, even though it resulted in tremendous hardship and physical suffering. And Paul gave God all the credit for every aspect of transforming him from persecutor Saul to redeemed Paul. That's our second division is redeemed Paul. Galatians chapter 1 verses 15 through the first part of verse 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now I'm going to stop Paul here mid-sentence because these two verses are oozing with the graciousness of God. We need to work the truth of these verses into our hearts. We want to work the beauty of these verses into our stories. Think about it. Paul, a man dedicated to the murderous persecution of Christians, a man so full of self-righteousness, he completely missed seeing God's promised Messiah. This, this is the hopeless, helpless man that God set apart before he was born. This is the man that God called by grace. This is the man God was pleased to give a glorious revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is the man that God chose to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. What these two verses describe is the doctrine of unconditional election. This doctrine is most simply described as God's sovereign and gracious choice of certain individuals to receive eternal life. Paul writes about this doctrine in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 6 where he says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Our salvation is the work of God from start to finish. Simple, right? But unconditional election is a difficult doctrine for us to wrap our minds around. There's something in our sin nature that refuses to believe that we are so bad that we need a Savior. And if and when we do see a flaw in our character, we figure we can fix it ourselves. We are so good at fixing ourselves. Salvation that is solely God's gracious work, it is an affront to our pride our self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency, and our independence. People also get hung up on things like free will, who is elect, who is not elect, the responsibility of the elect, 
the responsibility of the non-elect. People accuse God of being unjust or unfair when they read about this doctrine. They forget that God is not only sovereign, he is loving, he is just, he is gracious, he is merciful, and he has compassion on everything he has made. When we rely on what we do know and understand about God, it is sufficient for us to trust him with what we don't understand. No matter the finer points of the doctrine of unconditional election, you and I can trust God to do what is exactly right with every single person. No one, not one person ever born will stand before God's judgment seat and be able to honestly say, but God, I tried to come to you on your own terms, but you shut me out. Now it is important to note that God's sovereignty and unconditional election does not negate our responsibility to believe. God draws men and works through their faith. Yet even that faith is a gift of God's grace. The Bible clearly teaches divine election and human responsibility are perfectly balanced. John Piper says, God's choices do not depend on the degree of evil or good in man, but solely on his sovereign will. Therefore, no one can say he is too evil to be shown grace. The doctrine of unconditional election is the great doctrine of hope for the worst of sinners. It means that when it comes to being a candidate for grace, your background has nothing to do with God's choice. If you have not been born again and brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ, do not sink into hopelessness thinking that the excessive rottenness or hardness of your past life is an insurmountable obstacle to God's gracious work in your life. God loves to magnify the freedom of his grace by saving the worst of sinners. That is exactly what he did with Paul. God set him apart before he was born and by grace called him by revealing his son Jesus to him. Paul's story vividly illustrates the gospel's life-changing power. And God did not merely choose Paul to be saved. As his sovereign Lord, he also called him into service. In verse 16, Paul says that God called him in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's divine call is similar to the prophet Jeremiah's. In describing his call, he uses the same language as Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 4 through 5, which say, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Like Paul, 
Jeremiah was commissioned by God and appointed as a prophet, one who speaks forth God's word. Just like Paul and Jeremiah, our Creator calls every believer to serve Him. Philip Graham Ryken says that every Christian story is different, but the storyline is always the same. God chose you and called you to faith. He revealed His Son to your heart. Then He gave you a particular place of service. Do you know what God has called you to do? Well, how would you answer that? Do you know what God has called you to do? Examine your story. It should include service as well as salvation. John Calvin comments, we owe it to the goodness of God, not only that we have been elected and adopted to everlasting life, but that he deigns to make use of our services, who would otherwise have been altogether useless, and that he assigns to us a lawful calling in which we may be employed. The gospel has life-giving power. So when you and I answer God's call to serve Him, we experience His strengthening, sustaining power. We enjoy His glorious presence in unique and amazing ways. The power of the, the gospel, it's comprehensive. It is given by grace to God's elect for eternal life, employment, and enjoyment. This gives us our second truth. The gospel is given by grace to God's elect for eternal life, employment, and enjoyment. Charles Spurgeon applies this truth beautifully. He says, examine yourselves, dear friends. Then by this, I do not ask you whether your hearts are perfect. They are not. I do not ask you whether your hearts never go astray, for they are prone to wander. But I do ask you, is your heart resting upon Jesus Christ? Is it a believing heart? Does your heart meditate upon divine things? Does it find its best solace there? Is your heart humble heart? Are you constrained to ascribe all to sovereign grace? Is your heart a holy heart? Do you desire holiness? Do you find your pleasure in it? Is your heart bold for God? Does your heart ascribe praises to God? Is it a grateful heart? And is it a heart that is wholly fixed upon God, desiring never to go astray? If it be, then you have marks of election. Search for these and add to all your searching this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is one prayer 
that God will answer. His gospel is, after all, given by grace to his elect for eternal life, employment, and enjoyment. This describes God's call on Paul's life. Once he was converted to faith in Jesus Christ, God called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He then equipped him to do the work he was called to do. God refined Paul into a preacher of the gospel. So that's our third division is refined preacher. Galatians chapter 1 verse 16c, the end of verse 16 through verse 24. So verse 16 continues through verse 17. Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now Paul makes it clear that he had no personal contact with the apostles in Jerusalem right after he received the gospel by a revelation of Jesus Christ. He certainly did not need them to confirm it. Paul is emphatic about this because the Judaizers were claiming that Paul got his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles and that he was preaching a distorted version of this gospel, one that did not require circumcision. After a brief time in Damascus, God led Paul to Arabia. Now this was very purposeful on God's part. The gospel came to the Jews first. Jesus ministered to the nation of Israel and entrusted this ministry to the apostles. Jerusalem was their mission field. The death of Stephen was a turning point. When he was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ, believers were scattered. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Saul, who stood holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, experienced the life-changing power of the gospel and became Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. Paul's ministry to them begins, but even the best of biblical scholars do not agree on where he went and when. It appears that he stayed in Damascus for just a little while. We see this in Acts chapter 9 verses 19 through 20 when we read that he immediately proclaimed Jesus Christ in the synagogues there saying he is the son of God. When the Jews then sought to kill him, Paul escaped by being lowered in a basket through an opening in the city wall. Galatians tells us what Acts does not. In the last part of verse 17, he says, But I went away to, into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18 tells us that Paul spent three years in Arabia alone with the Lord, dedicated to study, prayer, and meditation. The other apostles were taught for, by Jesus for three years. So many scholars believe that he does the same with Paul the Apostle here. 
Some believe Paul also continued preaching the gospel during this time. Verses 18 through 19 says that Paul finally went to Jerusalem, where he spent only 15 days with only two of the apostles, Cephas, which is the Aramaic name of Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus. Paul says this to underscore that his gospel did not come from a human source, but was truly from God. This visit to Jerusalem is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 30, which says all of the other apostles were initially afraid of him, and they did not believe he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. But later, Barnabas, Barnabas believed him. He brought him to the disciples and told them of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And he told them of his bold preaching of the gospel in Damascus. The reluctance of the Jerusalem apostles to believe Paul proves again that the gospel given to Paul was independent of the apostles. This is so important that Paul in verse 20 swears to it with an oath saying, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul wants the Galatians to know that what he says is important and it is true, no matter what the Judaizers were saying. He refutes their claims that his teaching was corrupt or false by saying he received the gospel from Jesus and no one else. He makes his case that the gospel is that this gospel is the pure, powerful, and life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. God gave him the one true gospel to preach to the Gentiles. He is a God-ordained, God-called apostle. Therefore, he has a God-given authority to minister to the Gentiles. Verse 21 says that he ministered in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now, Syria and Cilicia were one Roman province at that time. Tarsus, which was Paul's hometown, was in Cilicia. Acts 9.30 confirms this movement of Paul. Then in verses 22 through 24, Paul continues saying, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The immediacy of Paul's obedience to God's call is remarkable. The moment he received the gospel through the revelation of Jesus Christ, he was converted and he began preaching the truth of the gospel. The gospel has life-changing power. It transformed Paul's zeal to stamp out the church into a zeal to preach the truth about Jesus Christ. And from his conversion until the day he died, Paul sought to glorify God with his every breath. The ones he had been persecuting 
took notice. They saw his amazing transformation and they gave glory to God for it. These Christians had witnessed a miraculous work of God. The miraculous transforming work of God is the theme of every Christian's story because the gospel has life-changing power. It fills us with a zeal to glorify God with our lives. That's our third truth is that the gospel fills us with a zeal to glorify God with our lives. What has God called you to do with your life? How are you actively building up the body of Christ? Do others see in you a zeal to glorify God? Incredibly, God has not only chosen us for salvation, He has also chosen for us a place of service designed to bless and build up His church. What gifts has God given to you? What is your passion? How has God equipped you? To answer these questions, spend time in prayer. Ask God to give you His insight into your identity in Christ so that you might know who you are, the direction your life should take, and what His purpose is for your life. The gospel has life-changing power. It fills us, all of us, no matter how young, no matter how old, with the zeal to glorify God with our lives. What are you doing to glorify Him? What is your story? Commentator Tony Merida says that Paul's story shows us that God loves to save bad people. No one is beyond the reach of his amazing grace. This message only comes from God. The gospel is not good advice from man. It is good news from God. Rejoice in the gospel. In Christ you find what your heart always longed for. No other love is this great. No other hope this secure. No other forgiveness this complete. No other joy this deep. No other freedom this liberating. No other peace is this sweet. All of it found in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know this Savior, the fountain of saving grace? And I ask you, is this Savior part of your life story? The gospel has life-changing power. How has it changed your life? Would you pray with me? Oh, Holy Father, we give you thanks and praise. You are the Lord, our God. I pray that you would help us to glorify your name forever. Great is your loving kindness 
and your graciousness toward us. You have rescued our souls from the depths of the grave. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. In Christ, eternal life is ours. You have commissioned us to serve you to your glory and equipped us to do so. Truly, you are a good and gracious God. Thank you, loving Father, for the gift of your gospel. May its power be manifest in your people as they live and move and have their being in you. This we pray in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.